Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And my name is Alex Wong. Alex and David, I have a question for you. All right. What's that? What's the worst part about prison? Uh, y- you know, it's the, uh, the, the, the Dementors. <laughs> Was that the right Like reference? in Harry Potter? <laughs> Man, they, the tormentors of our souls. That's, that's the worst part, right? Uh, yes. That was a, um... Uh, an attempt at a cute little reference on my part to The Office, a uh, two-part episode we've already done. But that is not the most important part of that question. The most important part of that question is, we have a guest today. My awesome, very good friend Alex Wan has joined us. And also your co-host on uh, Nothing to Fear. Exactly. So congratulations, Alex. You are the second guest ever on this wow. podcast. Big honor. Thanks for having I me. I got to say that, you know, Nothing to Fear has definitely made an imprint on Really True Fiction. We now have our two first guests, are <laughs> the co-hosts, our Luke's co-host on another podcast. So, so Alex, <laughs> we'll ask you again later, but where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Nothing to Fear. You can, you can listen to me there. <laughs> That's a little joke for listeners, because every time we end Nothing to Fear, Billy asks me and Alex where we can be found. <laughs> And I say, you know, really true fiction. And I was yeah. like, you could find me here. <laughs> Literally this is, here. This is where I am. <laughs> yeah. Only so, um, real fans will get that joke, right? <laughs> yeah. Like the whatever is the tiny the, Venn. The crossover. Like, yeah, exactly. One person. <laughs> Danica. Yeah, Danica. <laughs> hey, Danica. Yeah. So, uh, Alex, I mean, welcome. Honestly, I'm really excited to have you. And, um, it's a little bit weird because we're all in the same city, but given the lockdown, you're remote, but it's cool with technology. Like, even in the same city, you can do remote podcast recordings, hey? Yeah, yeah. It's working out well. Thanks for having me. It's a big honor to be on Really True Fiction. Mm. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see how you feel by the end of this be, might, might just be a thing you did. An honor <laughs> might be a, you know, a little extreme. But. Yeah. That reminds me... Um, I, I want to give a shout out to a major Promethean of mine, Christopher Hitchens, who um, passed away on December 15th, 2011, which was yesterday. So it was his like death anniversary yesterday. So I, I gave saw. a shout out to him on Facebook. And I saw that. He has this great line where he says, of all of the introductions, that one was the most recent. Ah. <laughs> so Alex, maybe of all the podcasts you've appeared on, yes, you can say for sure re- this one really is the most true. recent. Yeah, exactly. Most recent. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should say that on nothing to fear. <laughs> so, in case yeah, in case you didn't read the title of this today, we're doing uh, the third book, Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry Potter series, a continuation of our 
kind of passive working our way through the Harry Potter books. You just, you know, once you hit around the 70 episode mark, at some point you're just like, I can get through any series. Any, I feel like this is how Carlin must feel like hardcore history. He's like, I can get through any time period. I did like the entire Roman Republic. And then I was like, oh, no. now feudal Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If he can talk about that for 80 hours, he can talk about anything, right? <laughs> exactly. You've, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to a point where... So we're, we're, at, we're having fun, though. I'm, I'm enjoying this because I was never... As we've talked about, I was never a Harry Potter fan until adult life. Whereas I feel like that's a generational constant that I missed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that was one of the that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about first, Alex, is because unlike Dave and I, you actually read these books as a kid, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think I was introduced to Harry Potter in grade four by my teacher, and she would read like a chapter of it to our class like every day. And we got through Philosopher's Stone and we all loved it. So we're like, read more, read more. So by the end of the year, she had finished Prisoner of Azkaban. So we we went through the first three Harry Potter books in grade four. And then after that, I was like, okay, well, obviously my fifth grade teacher is not going to read this out to me. So I'm going to start reading them on my own. And by that point, I had (laughs) caught up, right? So I was was reading them as they were released at that point. So yeah, I I definitely grew up with it. Would you argue, Alex, that um, this story made you fall in love with stories? Um, that I don't. I don't know. I I don't really know how to answer that because I'm I'm trying to reflect back on like, because this would have been 2001 when I when I listened to my teacher read this, uh, yeah. Azkaban out to me. So I think at that point I didn't really like. I loved reading because. I, I, my family, like I grew up in a family where, you know, we're only allowed to watch TV on the weekends. And um, so what I did was I went to the library and I borrowed a bunch of books. So I loved reading. And um, I think at that point, I didn't really appreciate how stories were told in a writing format, like a book. Right. Um, until I had the freedom to watch TV whenever I could, because that was kind of really my whole exposure to, you know, stories was books only like i didn't I, I didn't watch too many movies because you know i could only watch them on the weekend so i think reading books was my primary source of you know stories and um so i i don't know if i i appreciated it more but i think in hindsight like looking back now definitely i appreciate the the written medium and then especially since like watching the movies and you know i think they're well-made movies and they for the most part they do a good job at like following the story and um following the source material and they they do it quite well but in terms of harry potter the books and harry potter the movies i'm 100 percent books all the time right well mm-hmm. i think anyone who tr- who truly loves a story whether it's lord of the rings or narnia or harry potter or you know or dune you always love the book more uh, I, I did like Lord of the Rings movies more. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Tolkien's writing is pretty dry. That's fair. Well, and there's something kind of different about the Lord of the Rings books in that they don't seem to be written for that young adult no, yeah. uh, age group in the way that Narnia and Harry Potter are. It's mm-hmm. true. So even though we lump them together movie-wise and story-wise and fantasy-wise, like the canon of fantasy, the source material is very different of Lord of the Rings to... Those other it's ones, more right? like a history. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, um, you know, 
because I knew I was going to be a guest on on this. So I kind of did some reading on like Prisoner of Azkaban reviews when they came out. Um, oh, nice. And I think like for the most part, it was like universally praised. And it was like a really like people were saying it's a great story, like nothing, nothing brand new, but it was a great story and really kept you hooked and wanted you to keep reading like the next four books that Rowling would would write. Um, but then I think some of the criticisms was that, you know, the characters were quite, quite like two-dimensional and not as interesting as they could have been. Mm. But I think being that I was, you know, around probably like nine or ten when I read the, these books for the first time, I didn't feel that way because I think one of the great things about how Rowling writes her characters is that she doesn't make them any more complex than they need to be for what their age is. So, you know, mm-hmm. in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry is Harry is 13 years old. And um, there's like little lines of dialogue that I could relate to so much at that age. Yeah, it's, it's kind of the genius of her writing is that she captures the emotion of being that age. I, I said that, I think, in our first episode, but I completely agree with you. That's... That is a that's a great insight. Like she is, it's an underappreciated art to be able to get into someone else's head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'll I'll just give like a really quick example because I read this book very recently again just to be ready for this. <laughs> um, it was the part in the book where um Gryffindor is about to play a Ravenclaw in the Quidditch match, and Oliver Woods telling Harry their seeker is Cho Chang, and like she's like a year older than you and whatever, and then they go out on the pitch, and he looks at her. And just like one one sentence, Rowling writes like Harry noticed how pretty she was, and he felt a feeling in his stomach that he that wasn't nervous from being nervous from the game, and it was just like a really quick one sentence that it's like, yeah, that's how I I would have felt if I saw a pretty girl when I was thirteen. You know? Yeah, like oh, I totally. Wouldn't, I wouldn't have yeah. dwelled, dwelled on it for very long, but it would have been it was like really smart and made like I think as two-dimensional as people can argue that the characters are, it's those kind of one-off lines that make you really feel like you could be in this world because you know it's what, such Alex? a relatable human emotion at that age. That is such a perfect example, too, that it was Quidditch and sports because it made me immediately think of when I played hockey as a teenager, like 13, 14, 15, and I would always be looking to see if there were girls sitting in the <laughs> oh, stands. Oh, man, we all because, did. Like, because then maybe I'm going to play a little harder or like... <laughs> you just maybe, hope that like a woman will pay exactly, attention to you at exactly. that end. It's like, you know? No, not like you, nectar mom, from the gods when they talk to you, right? <laughs> yeah, and any time I'd actually like get close enough to talk to them, I'd never know what to say, but it's like, but maybe they'll see me play hockey or maybe Cho Chang will see how good of a seeker although it's a little different because she was also yeah. in a position be a little different yeah. if I played <laughs> hockey with the girls and they kicked my ass or something <laughs> you know so yeah Alex I guess I have two questions one of them maybe you've already answered but about like just reflecting on the difference between reading Harry Potter as a kid versus reading it as an adult because Dave and I experience with Harry Potter has been totally as an adult I mean obviously we saw the movies as in our 20s mm-hmm. and, or what teenagers whenever they came out right but since we weren't allowed to uh, yes, read yes. them again, see previous note on the latent Satanism in, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. <laughs> oh. uh, so we were like we're coming to these books without the kind of um, enchantment that they had for the kid part. But I still love them because. Uh, and, and we talked about it a lot in the first two episodes we've done. These are very archetypal stories, which I think is what you're getting at too. Like 
the the kind of almost moral lessons and the character lessons and the exciting storytelling and then on top of that the the, the storytelling is perfect where they've done this in in the previous books but prisoner of azkaban really like i noticed oh there is so much they're set she is setting up so much of the narrative in the story like introducing sirius as a character introducing peter pettigrew as a character who obviously has a huge role to play in goblet of fire and 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 other books right and so it's like bringing up characters and even cedric is is brought up as a character in this book right and like oh just laying so much pipe for future narrative which i think is so smart which makes me think she must have had all seven books planned out in her head before she wrote them which i think because i think it'd yeah be really it, that hard was definitely the case because i'm i'm pretty sure i read somewhere where she's like when i started writing harry potter i knew how it would end already mm. so like it's all it's all a matter of like making those like the start and the ending match up and kind of filling in those details as you go but like reverse engineering e- yeah, yeah but reading reading prisoner of azkaban again recently kind of to answer well that and, and it's just, the second question is related so you can answer both like right right why why did you pick because when i asked you i was like well which one do you want to do harry potter and you're like prisoner of azkaban so why prisoner of azkaban specifically out of all of the seven that you could have been a guest on for this because you could have been a guest on all seven, my friend. <laughs> nah, true, true. You may, maybe maybe he he show he who asks receives, right? And he who asks not receiveth not. <laughs> yeah, hint hint for any listeners out there, right? <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, it shouldn't be that big of a hint. We are real easy. <laughs> anyway. uh, yeah, so I guess I guess I'll answer that second one first. Why I why I choose Prisoner of Azkaban? So the obvious answer is it out of all seven books, it's my favorite one. And I think the reason it's my favorite one is it it's t- to me it's got the most interesting story to it. Yeah, this one is the only one where uh, Voldemort isn't the clear antagonist in the ah in, good in the point book, out of all yeah. seven of them. You know, sorry spoilers for four to seven, but yeah, oh, in, in of Azkaban, <laughs> uh, Voldemort isn't the main villain. So I think it, it takes a really different approach to the typical harry potter formula this book lays so much groundwork for things to come in the future that i think if you just read it by itself if i just read prisoner of azkaban by itself i don't think it would have been my favorite but looking at it in an all seven context it's my favorite because of all that foundation it lays and all the Mm. things that it sets up for the future and you know even the little bit of character development that it has in it um for you know the future books i thought was great And then as well, um, mostly from a themes perspective, I think this one, it skirts the line between really adult mature themes, which come up in the later books, um, like lots of death, you know, spoilers. And then also it, it kind of, it gets away from like the really easy child problems of the first two. You know, not saying that Harry didn't have a lot of big problems in the first two. You know, there were there was life and death in them. But um, the themes such as, you know, coming to terms with your parents' killer, you know, why they were killed, your, like your parents were betrayed by their best friend. Like these are pretty deep themes mm. and pretty pretty mature true. themes that Very true. I think really resonated with me at that at that age when I first read it. And I think it's it's a good in between where it's not quite it's not super kitty and it's not super adulty yet. It's right kind of in between, and it's it's that starting of like coming of age for Harry. You know, obviously all seven books are coming of age for Harry, but I think this first one is a big shift in you know discovering more about his past, learning the truth about what had really happened, and 
him having to come to terms with, um, you know, I think I think this is explored really well in this book is having lots of caring adults in his life that pop up in this book, such as Lupin, and at the very mm. end we have Sirius Black, um, but them being taken away so quickly as from him based off of the circumstances of the plot. I think that's that was a really powerful theme that resonated with me of um you know in the first two we know Harry's an orphan and you know his his uh his relatives are awful to him but and then in this one you're you're given a bit of hope like oh he's got his parents had best friends that loved his parents and will love him as well but then to have them taken away from him so quickly um I think that mm. that that was a it was a really really cool part of Harry's growing up that really resonated with me. And I think mm. those are those are all points that kind of made me enjoy this. And then on top of that, I think the story of this one was my favorite because it was pretty concise. Like, it's not a very long book, but it went through so many things and it never left me questioning motives and why did things happen this way. And, yeah. you know, as, as convoluted as time travel can be, I think this, this book did it really well as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time, <laughs> yeah. Time travel's hard, but they, you know... It was handled well. It was tasteful, tasteful, tasteful time travel. It didn't, it didn't Triple assume T. we were stupid, but it, you know, it wasn't afraid to throw around a little paradox. You know what, Alex? That is such a great point because I think it really emphasizes a a docking station, I guess, on the uh, the archetype of the hero's journey, right? Which is Harry Potter is a huge archetype of the hero's journey, and one of the I can't even think of the right word, but like one of the lines on that process or the data points in that in that circle of, if you're going to diagram the myth of a circle, one point on that circle as you go around it is the moment our hero is exposed to a bigger world. And uh, obviously Harry has already literally been exposed to the bigger world. That that happens in Philosopher's Stone with him learning he's a wizard. But um, very similar to, uh, you know, (laughs) Luke Skywalker learning it's not super easy to just be on the Death Star. (laughs) You know, there's people (laughs) out to get him. Uh, Harry is learning, like, Oh my gosh! This bigger world, this Ministry of Magic, this um, a prisoner. There, there's a prison of Azkaban. These Dementors are out there. Like these kind of like a new. The Dementors represent, at least in the Harry Potter world, to me, a new level of evil in in the ambient world. Not just obviously we have Voldemort, which is like the, you know, the epitome of the evil that we're worried about. But we have Dementors, and we have you know, obviously we have the betrayal of Peter Pettigrew. We have this kind of like grudge that's like, there's just a bigger adult world that I think is perfect. I think it's a, this is 13 is the perfect age for Rowling to have made it a darker story because, you know, 13 is a very transitional age in young people's lives where you like, you're waking up to some crazy shit. You know, Mm. I, you know, that's when people have bar mitzvahs in the Jewish tradition. And like, it's like, I remember when I turned 13, all the men at the church came yeah. and like, <laughs> yep, you're yep. a man now, you know, welcome to the club. You, can, you still can't read <laughs> Harry Potter. Oh, it was 12 for me for some oh, reason. Okay. Precocious know. David was precocious. Oh, always <laughs> early, right? <laughs> and so I just love that that was something you took out of it because I think that that is a massive data point on the, you know, the monomyth of the hero's journey, which is like, obviously Prisoner of Azkaban is the book where, Harry is just getting a darker, grittier understanding. Like, oh, we're going to have to execute Buckbeak even, right? Like him having to face execution as a potential thing for something he cares about. So I think all of that is really well well, I ascribed think, to in, in the way you answered that, Alex. Yeah, it brings, it's it, it 
it's like, okay, we're not kids anymore. Things are going to get a little bit more serious. They're not all the way serious yet, right? We haven't... But it's such a testament to the observations Rowling had about being a teenager, about being 13. It's a, it's a testament to like just throwing that in. It's, it isn't all you think about. It's not even most of what you think about, but suddenly it's something that you think about. Mm-hmm. And, right? It's like yeah, incremental. And this is, this and is the first one that I don't think has a clear-cut happy ending to it, right? In Philosopher's mm-hmm. Stone and Chamber Secrets, they're pretty happy endings. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I think it'd be hard to argue that they're not happy endings. But in, in you know, Prisoner of Azkaban, you know, it's, it's not clear cut. You know, suffering fa- enters stage right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like his his favorite teacher resigns. His godfather, who was going to adopt him and he was going to live with, is still on the run. The real traitor, Pettigrew, escaped. Right. Mm-hmm. There's still lots of like, unsolved stuff at the end of this one, which I think. This one is the one that kind of lead, leaves you wanting more. And that's that's mm. what really, like, I think this one was the one that really got me into Harry Potter. <laughs> Which is exactly what it's like to be 13. Yeah. I every, want more. Every, everything leaves you wanting more. Yeah. Like, that's like, <laughs> you might as well stamp that on being 13 and yeah. say, there's the brand. Oh, uh, my, mm. my hardest ages were definitely 13, 14. Uh, that's I, when I had the hardest time in yeah. my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. It's like, oh man, 13 year olds are manifestly unimpressive and I was manifestly 13. They are are emotionally just bereft of any ability. Well, that's a good, that's great. So just before, Alex, you give us the the plot rundown for the one listener out there in the world who doesn't know Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, I guess my dad. Hello. (laughs) Hey, Dad. (laughs) We just want to thank all listeners for listening to Really True Fiction. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And Alex, where can they find you? (laughs) You can find me on another podcast that also has Luke. It's called uh, Nothing to Fear. And each week we watch a horror movie and we talk about it. Or um, you can just Google Nothing to Fear podcast and I'm sure it'll (laughs) pop up there. I don't know. I don't do this. (laughs) Billy usually does it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah no we'll uh i'll make sure to um link to nothing to fear in the in the episode notes for this one and i guess they can literally find you in this episode too so yeah literally this You're right one. here and <laughs> right now possibly future ones i don't know oh definitely you know, for sure absolutely definitely this is gonna be a thing that's happening for years to come so. it's more yeah exactly and like the truth is um because we've known each other for so long and now we've been recording for so long david and i are so in sync yeah it's it's kind of getting like um who's justin and who's sorry? lance from what? what oh just uh my my little attempt at a joke oh in sync <laughs> oh. oh shit no i feel like david <laughs> that's how i feel all the time hey i have way more empathy for you now <laughs> that's empathy that one was for alex uh. <laughs> i don't know i think there's a phenomenon where you get so kind of comfortable and you know what to expect with another person that maybe in recording way you get into bad habits or something right so we're th- so you're, you're the spiciness to our sauce here yeah. we need like some we need to like liven things up a little bit alex Change variety one yeah boom <laughs> <laughs> i guess i'll just say why alex is on this as a as an early guest is that alex has been a very good friend of mine for almost five years well i met you almost five years ago i don't know if you liked me until about four and a half years ago so. yeah that, that's true 
You know, but that's still a decent amount. Luke's an acquired taste, but you know, easily acquired. But he's an acquired taste, right? Actually, uh, so the truth is, Alex and I used to work together in the same location for uh, over a year and a half, I think. So when I moved back to Calgary for this round two, Alex was one. I would say probably you were my first new friend in Calgary. Because I had a lot of friends from university, but I think you were my first new friend in Calgary, which is kind of cool. So, nice. Anyway. Big money. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. So, uh, yeah. Alex, Hurry up with my damn croissant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For the, one, for the one listener out there who doesn't know this book, Alex, what happens in this book? Um, yeah, it, it's like any other Harry Potter book. It goes through Harry's third year at Hogwarts um, in this one. It starts off, you know, he's he's on summer vacation, and his aunt, who he hates, comes to visit, and you know, he promise like he promises his uncle if he's on his best best behavior, like to be on his best behavior. If his uncle, if he is, his uncle will sign a form that lets him go to the village on weekends. Um, obviously, he isn't on his best behavior, and his his aunt is, uh, <laughs> you know, not a pleasant person. So he, no. Uh, no. he he blows her up pretty much. Is like he expands her and she's floating around. He like he uses magic when he shouldn't and he runs away. Um and all the t- and he runs away and then all this time there's like news that there's this uh killer on the loose and it's on the muggle news that this guy's in- extremely dangerous. So he's on the run. Um he gets picked up by the night bus and takes him to, you know, uh London to the Leaky Cauldron in Diagon Alley and he's met by the minister of magic and he's thinking he's going to get expelled now because he uh you know performed magic outside of school but instead they're like oh nice you're here why don't like no problem you can just stay here for the rest of your summer and then go to school after um and he learns that Sirius black is actually a criminal in the magical world who escaped the prison uh who escaped azkaban which is the wizard prison and he's extremely dangerous and you know, there's stories about how he was one of Voldemort's biggest supporters, and like right before they captured him, he blew up and a whole street and killed 12 people and killed another wizard named Peter Pettigrew, and then he got arrested. Um, so the whole time, so it, yeah, that's that's pretty much like the the plot of it. And you know, Harry's at school; he's got some new lessons. He he takes a uh, you know divin- divination. Like that's like fortune yeah. telling stuff. Yeah, yeah. He takes mag- care of magical creatures. Who's taught by Hagrid, and then there's a new teacher, Professor Lupin, who teaches is the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Man, that that Defense Against the Dark Arts role, like you know, I know it's a Harry Potter trope, but it always just makes me giggle every High time. High turnover I, rate of that. Every hey? time I read it, I'm like, oh man, like mm-hmm. this is such a trope, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like it goes through the school year, but there's like a ton of like different things that happens like he loses a quidditch match and his because like the so the the dementors are a big thing they're the azkaban guards and they've been sent out to hogwarts to kind of protect and to hunt down Sirius black and they're like these ethereal ghostly beings i guess that kind of suck happiness and suck the soul out of people Um, yeah it's like it's pretty freaky yeah so he loses a good match he falls off his broom his broom breaks he gets sent a new broom by a mysterious person hermione gets a new cat who's always after ron's rat scabbers and there's like a lot of tension between their friendship because of that because he never got his permission form signed he can't go to the hogsmeade village on the weekend but then 
uh fred and george give him a map that gives him secret like shows him secret tunnels out of the school and he's able to sneak out there's like a lot of little subplots that actually have lots of big impact like we find out like we learn pretty early that hermione has is taking like a giant course load where it seems like she's taking two classes at once and that has a big payoff at the end hagrid isn't the best teacher but because Hagrid is their friend they're really supportive of him and you know the very first lesson because Malfoy is an asshole the hippogriff which they were studying attacks Malfoy and then the hippogriff uh is on like animal trial Buckbeak is the name and if he's deemed dangerous he'll get executed so that's another subplot in the, the thing um Harry's constant battles with the Dementors and he he turns to Lupin to help him how to fight against Dementors so learning the Patronus charm yeah and it all comes down to the climax where Sirius Black is uh he learns that Sirius Black was his uh father's best friend who betrayed his father and his mother and got Voldemort to kill him but then plot twist it turns out that uh Sirius wasn't the one and it was actually Peter who was the traitor and Peter is actually Scabbers the rat who, and then you learn like they're animagus and you learn that lupin's a werewolf and about you know his his father's friendship with them when they're younger and through a series of unfortunate events black has the serious black can't take care of harry because he has to escape because people still think he's guilty and there's some time travel involved where they have to rescue him that way and yeah that's I don't know. Is that, is that a good plot rundown? There's so much to talk about in this one. Yeah, I know. No, no. That's, no that, that was, was very great. good. That was actually probably more thorough than uh, <laughs> David or I would have been. So good job. True, true. <laughs> no, I like it though. It's uh, There's so many cool just like aha moments. It's it's one of the best uh, things that Harry Potter does. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's a new crazy thing that we're introducing. And oh yeah, it, it's in the first book too. And the second book, there's some reference to it. Then the third book, you get the payoff. Mm-hmm. So she's got forward and backwards. I think this book is almost, in some ways, a totem of her writing, mm-hmm. right? Because she's like, she does all of the things she does best in this book. Yeah, and with that, and it's mirrored nicely in a weaving literary, the story together. Yeah, yeah, in a literary sense, it's weaved in really beautifully because of that forward and backwards you're talking about is mirrored with an actual plot device. Yeah, in that, this book, that's which, what I mean. Which is Hermione traveling she's, through time. She's right? paying so, um, homage to something she enjoys. Her own doing. work. Yeah, to her own work. <laughs> oh, yeah, self-referential humor for sure. I don't know if you two kind of picked up on this, but if you reread *Philosopher's Stone*, right in the first chapter. Sirius Black is mentioned, and it's tied in with this one. When Hagrid brings in baby Harry to Privet Drive uh, with McGonagall and Dumbledore there, Mm. he's riding this motorcycle, and he's like, oh, young Sirius Black lent me his bike. Oh, right. He says that. It's actually, I I actually looked back at the first book, and it's like, it says Sirius, young Sirius Black. Wow. Yeah, this is like attention to detail is just such a, there's a lot of payoff to attention to detail. And when Harry, uh, he like he's eavesdropping on the teachers uh, at the Leaky Cauldron, or not the Leaky Cauldron, the uh, the Hog's Head or whatever, mm. at, at Hogsmeade, uh, Hagrid recalls that incident way back in the first book, where when he brought Harry in, Sirius lent him his motorbike. <laughs> right. Well, you know, this might be a, a bit of a weird comparison, and I don't think it's as good of a story, but. I remember, so I'm rewatching Lost. I think I've mentioned to both of you before that I'm rewatching Lost, and I'm on season five, which is the most mind fucky of all of the seasons of Lost because it's the time travel season. Right. 
And I remember at the time when Lost came out and it was like weekly, the big debate on the internet and with people is like, do the people of Lost, like, do they know what they're doing or are they just making it up as they go? Like right. all of these mysteries, it's just cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Do they know what they're doing? And I think it's interesting because I think that's actually a psychological phenomenon of the fact of there just being so much time in between that you kind of have that all you this really time to get talk this about confidence it that she does before know what you she's get doing. the next chapter. But since I'm binge watching Lost. And especially season five. Season four is also very complicated. I'm like, no, they knew exactly what they were doing because this is, there's so many things for them to mess up if they're not th- have this thoroughly planned out right. before they do it. Because so many of the scenes are back and forth through time. And if like something that happens in an episode in the future is explained by something in the past, but eight episodes later. So in the past of the story is in the future of the viewer. Wow. <laughs> right? And so like that's so complicated to do on the fly. So I don't know this for a fact, but I'm coming down on the side that I think in Lost, they knew what they were doing and they had it all written out. <laughs> and that the ending too, that everyone just found so disappointing. Yeah, well, that's a different story. <laughs> do, do you think they knew what they were doing in the new Star Wars trilogy? Yeah, uh, that's a different no. podcast for a no. different time. Uh. Alex, you know exactly my thoughts on the new Star Wars. Yeah, this, you are you are pressing buttons right now. This is called Alex. baiting a reaction. Yeah, you're you're looking for your response here. You know, okay. So just before I ask you about what you thought about Harry in different ways in this um, book, Alex, something you said in the plot rundown, I hadn't even thought about this, but it's interesting. So I'll just bring it up to put it on your mind. Maybe we can talk about it later. But I never even thought about the fact that. It's Malfoy who antagonizes Buckbeak. So Malfoy initiates the negative interaction, right? Buckbeak just defends himself or just does what any animal will. And because of that, Malfoy is all butthurt about it. But because he's, you know, quote, unquote, of the wizard elite, he just says, oh, I don't like this thing. So let's take it out. And it's basically because Malfoy's a little bitch that Buckbeak is going to get executed. Yeah. And I think that there's an interesting, like, metaphor there about, like, Elites getting their way if they're butthurt, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like just the fact that she even includes that little motif in the book too. You know, like there's just so many great motifs mm-hmm. in in Harry Potter. And I mean, I have a more sympathetic take on Malfoy in the final analysis. Obviously, like he, I think he's a redeemed character by the end of the book. But you know, he's a little, he's a whiny little kid who has all his bravado, kind of gets put in his place by Buckbeak or put in his place by reality, doesn't like reality, wants to get his way, calls up Papa, you know, calls up Lucius, the powerful elite wizard, and their family gets what they want with Buckbeak, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just like, oh man, it's just, it's such a great little story, fable, encapsulation of injustice, hey? And it's, it's such a great setup for the future books as well. Just this little minor thing about, you know, the elite in the wizarding world becomes so, so important in, um, in book seven. You know, she, it's like she's like a farmer who's seeding themes that are going to grow up through the course of this story. Mm-hmm. And I will also just point out one other Buckbeak point is that this is Buckbeak in the book is another just amazing thing. And I don't know if I don't know if I've ever read an author who does this this well as Rowling. Maybe it's because the books are written for younger people, so they're easier to pick out. I mean, maybe some other classic literature does this really well. But one thing she's maybe the best at is introducing something early for a different reason that becomes relevant for plot later in the book that because it was introduced in a different way, 
we don't just balk at it and say, oh, there's an ex machina moment going on here, right? Like, because Buckbeak, here's what I mean. It makes sense that Hagrid has something like a hippogriff, because Hagrid's a bit of an outdoorsy kind of, you know, he's the he's the gameskeeper, right? Uh, so Buckbeak is the kind of animal he would own. It would be the kind of animal he would talk about in the class that he's, you know, quote-unquote quote class he's teaching. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we get that through the Hagrid lens. And so, of course, Buckbeak is around to help out Harry and Hermione when they need to get when they need to fly to a tower to save Sirius, right? Like, yeah. It's instead of them just being like, oh, here's this flying animal that was here the whole time. Use that, right? No, no, no. It's introduced in the story earlier for a legitimate, organic, other reason. And if I really went through Harry Potter, I could find hundreds of these, big and small in her plot. Do you think this is the genius of her? One of them, right? One of them. Just her, like her, her, um, her storytelling genius. Yes, is, yes. Is that's ability, what I mean. Yeah, is an ability to have something early in the book in section A, oh, but useful for the climax. Often, right? it almost seems like a really beautiful chess game. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, so anyway, it, 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 it you never feel cheated from from when she does it because it feels so organically. Exactly. Um, like another great example is uh. In chapter one, when Harry gets a letter from Ron for his birthday, and Ron included the newspaper clipping of his family, like you know, in Egypt because they won like mm, three hundred yeah. galleons for their trip, and it's it it goes in description. You see his whole family there, and she specifically writes out, and you see Ron's rat scabbers, you know, in the, on yeah. his shoulder, right, and that comes back right at the end when Sir- when Lupin's like how did you know how did you know he was going to be here and Sirius is like well I read this article when yeah. I got a newspaper mm, and it, I saw the picture of the kid and I I, rec- I saw the rat and I recognized it was missing a finger which led me to believe that it was uh Peter and in the article it said that like uh Mr. Weasley's four youngest children attend Hogwarts it like it, yeah. it just makes so much sense for him to be exactly. like oh so Pettigrew's going to be in Hogwarts. That's where I'm going to go. It, it like it feels natural that that's kind of the line of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. I also like this like this under theme. This just it's this happens all the time in Harry Potter. This assumption that it's obvious that lives are weaving in and out of Harry's right, and then and Sirius Black's life has been horribly altered by what happened to Harry. And he's living with a totally different set of consequences and walking a totally different path to deal with it. And it's a kind of almost like a Count of Monte Cristo mm, yeah. vengeance path. Totally. Right? Yeah, that's a great connection. Yeah, and, and he, he says that himself in in like that big monologue at the end at the Shrieking Shack. He's like, How did you they ask, How did you survive Azkaban for all those years? He's like, Well, I knew I like I knew I was innocent, but it wasn't a happy thought, and that's what kept me going. And then yeah. when I, when I saw that Peter was still alive, it, it gave me a purpose. It gave me motivation to seek him out. Mm. And that's what got me to escape. Very so, Edmond Dantes of him. Yeah, there's so much to be said there, right? It gave me a reason to live. And it's like that man, Victor Frankl's man search for meaning kind of, we need a reason to live. Like, mm, yeah. I, I've recently been kind of asking myself that question. Like, well, what is the end game here? What am I working towards? What am I trying to accomplish with all this, you know, you know, this sound and fury signifying nothing? Like, what is this great, you know, play of life, you know, the Shakespearean walking in and doing my parts and walking off? Like, why am I doing it? 
And I kind of came to a conclusion. I'm like, okay, I know what I kind of want. I want, I know what I want the end goal to be. And, oh, it's so freeing because you're like, well, okay, now, now I know how to get there. I know what I need to do to get there and no one can take it from me because it's just a thing that I want that no one, that I can build myself. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in this strange way, this person has taken revenge. So Sirius has taken revenge and that's the core upon which he's built his entire sense of meaning right his raison d'etre and uh i think what do we use in our lives whatever it might be what it what is our what is your reason to be Mm. and would he have been so loving to harry i think so because this happens to people all the time they'll lose someone they love or something bad will happen and they'll kind of want revenge on existence for it well, and I think it's important to remember, too, that the reason, and I, I, this is kind of similar to Count of Monte Cristo. I haven't thought about it enough to know if it's totally similar. I don't think it's totally similar, but so Sirius is in jail, and and you'll remind me on the details of this, Alex, because you clearly have a better memory of this book than I do, but <laughs> Sirius got caught because he was also at the place where, when it turned out that it was Peter who killed the 12 people, we're also led to believe in the book that Harry believes Sirius helped Voldemort or betrayed his parents to Voldemort, right? Mm-hmm. Which was actually Peter. Yeah. And so I don't know if Sirius knows Harry believes that, but either way, he had to maybe suspect that Harry believes that about him. Right. So not only has Sirius been betrayed himself and put in jail, which is an injustice, but the the ward or his godson, the person he at least now ostensibly cares about the most in the world, thinks that he's the villain, yeah. right? Or he's the traitor. It would be like it would be like Mercedes blaming Dantes, right? right? In Count of Monte Cristo right. or something like yeah. that. Ugh. So he's almost got this like double reason for getting out of jail and yeah. clearing his name and finding Harry and reconnecting well, with and Harry, there, that's, right? There's a Count of Monte Cristo moment, clearing your name, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. And the importance of your name. Well, I was going to mention like, it's very clear Rowling is well, well acquainted with the classics because oh. she's just got loaded metaphor and 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 uh, and illusion. Like I'll I'll even point out a couple here because I was going to do it at some point, so might as well do it now. Lupin, his name turns into a werewolf. If I'm not mistaken, lupines are the um, scientific taxonomic name for wolves. So yeah, they- yeah. his first name is Remus, uh, Remus and Romulus. Right, they're the uh- like the founders the founders of rome, of rome yeah. yeah they were twin brothers that were abandoned and um they were uh you know taken care of and like they suckled a a wolf for mm-hmm. survival right yeah so you know so there's the wolf tie-in <laughs> yeah oh it's like let's lay some imagery down yeah. for the, well, for the literature I mean, nerds well talk about the classics like the f- the founding myth of rome oh <laughs> well, hard to get talk more. about the classic story of western civilization exactly. <laughs> it is rome yeah and then on top of that, Sirius is, I can't, it's either a star or a constellation of, you guessed it, the dog. <laughs> and Which is this, this comes back in a very, very obvious way that, you know, kids would be able to get it, right? It, goes, it yeah. comes back to their, their fake names that they wrote on the Marauder's map. Mooney, mm-hmm. Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Yeah. Like, their names are related to the animal that yeah. they transform into. It's so good. Kind of their theme. It's so good. Yeah. Another little point I wanted to make about Sirius Mm. and his motivation. I would kind of argue that he didn't have the caring for Harry 
uh, motivation until closer to the end. I think okay. I think his character was really really set on revenge and just like the only thing he wanted and his sole purpose, his only mission was to kill Pettigrew, Peter Pettigrew. But it wasn't until you know they're chatting in the shack, uh, the shrieking shack, and um, he actually. I think he's able to finally see Harry and learn about Harry and kind of he sees so much of James and Harry because this is always this has been pointed out in every single Harry Potter book is that Harry looks so much like James but has Lily's eyes right so I don't think it's until Sirius actually sees Harry and is talking to Harry that it reminds him so much of his best friend that you know the the the, the more human compassionate side comes out whereas before it was solely like revenge but like once he sees harry and he like even when harry does something that james would have done he he says no we're not going to kill peter like that's not what my dad would have wanted i think it's at that point where sirius sees that you know harry really is james and is really really is james's son and they're so similar in that fact that it brings out that compassion in him Um, because, you know, up until the point when he's trying to get Peter, like, I think he doesn't, like, Sirius doesn't care if he hurts Ron or if he hurts Mm. Harry, right? He just wants to get his goal. But at that point, um, like, even a lot of the, uh, the vocabulary, uh, Rowling uses, um, you know, it's very, when, when Luke or when Sirius starts talking, it's always like hoarsely and like harshly, but then it shifts into a more like, compassionate driven and when harry thinks he's going to be able to move in with lupin or not lupin with with sirius she has like a sentence about him smiling and it makes him look 10 years younger (laughs) um so yeah so i I thought that was that was a cool cool thing to put into uh sirius's character is that i think he was primarily or not primarily only driven by revenge and then when he finally sees harry Mm. and kind of that gives him remembers james that's when he the, the more compassionate human comes out after that well, and isn't it interesting that it's being in people we care about's presence, the difference that that makes? Yeah, that and maybe that's a exactly. bit of a reflection on COVID, right? Where we we have that emptiness of even purpose. That's that's so awesome that that was your insight there, Alex. Because I actually have a quote from Harry at that moment where he re- where he says, "My dad wouldn't want his best friends to become killers." Right? right, like that's yeah. kind of what you're referencing is like that's a literal line, and so like that's an that's an instantiation in the book of Harry being the hero, right? Like the the kind of merciful side of the wise hero or the wise leader of Harry shining through there of like, well, look, yes, probably Peter Pettigrew deserves to die, but the reason why we get to have moral authority, let's say, over someone like Peter Pettigrew is that we just don't indiscriminately kill him when we want, yeah. To. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's actually what allows like, us we, to we've, say we're better. We've talked about this before. Like, this is a part of how Harry Potter is a bit of an indoctrination tool for the values of the West. Yeah. It's like and- rule of law matters. You can't just <laughs> run around willy-nilly mobbing people and destroying their lives. And, and then- furthermore, furthermore, Harry being that way, like you were saying, Alex, is an inspiration to Sirius, right? It, it is, yes, Sirius sees Harry. He sees the physical resemblances. And maybe this is what you're saying. The deepest part is that he sees like the spirit or the character of James in mm-hmm. Harry. And he yeah. sees the spirit or the character of someone calling out a higher v- part of Sirius's self 
or soul that Sirius isn't really able to engage in right now because of his hatred or his anger or his frustration or his need for revenge, right? And so all of that coagulates into this one, you know, 13-year-old Harry Potter with dopey glasses and a scarry head who says, you know what, no, we, we can't just, my dad wouldn't want you to become a killer. And yeah, I think that that is part of the jumping off that I think is, you know, I see that too in 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 much more minor ways in life of like i think it's a good it's a it's an interesting way to think about the concept of inspiration to be better Mm -hmm. yeah and like even if you just think about it like imagine that you were framed for something that you didn't do and spent 12 years in in the worst conditions serving for a crime that you didn't commit and you have an opportunity to break out and you know who was the true like traitor or killer and whatever this hypothetical crime is and you seek them out and you hunt them out and your only motivation is to kill them but then just a 13 year old kid saying no my dad wouldn't want you to do this is enough to switch his character from you know that that such like it i think it just speaks volume as as to how much like it builds it really shows those bonds that sirius and james had when they were kids and the the mm-hmm. friendship that they had that, you know, a 13-year-old kid is able to convince Sirius otherwise not to kill someone that is responsible for the, his last 12 years of hell. Yeah. You know? And the heroism of Harry there being the fact that who has more right to want Peter Pettigrew dead than Harry? Exactly. Right? Like Harry, yeah. Harry is the top of the line of who gets to decide what happens to Peter Pettigrew. And, he and it's kind of like if, if Harry off. can let him off, then I can too. It's this... And you know what? It's the nobility of the simplicity of moral wisdom that you have in youth, mm. right? It's like the purity of justice, mm-hmm. he, right? He just, mm-hmm. he believes. Yeah. He's good in his heart. Yeah. And, and, and also, it, it speaks to the perennial theme of Harry Potter of friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, there's an obvious, obvious parallel archetypally between harry potter and jesus like there's yes. definitely that's not subtle like he's the one who can save us from the devil basically and interesting for me is one of the one of the things that i've learned the most about thinking about jesus as an archetypal figure is that it's like the worst thing happening to the person who least deserves it right as like that's a good definition of an archetypal figure yeah. and yeah i harry, stubbed my toe this morning i totally <laughs> yeah, agree yeah Harry has the most reason to want to take out Peter Pettigrew, and he's the one pulling the brakes the hardest to not do it. Yeah. You know? So it's like that, yeah. And I think that that is And there's just, uh, I think, an understanding that that's considered one of the most, or the noblest, let's say, positions to take on a moral level. And you know what? That's not agreed on by philosophers, but it's Mm. largely agreed on by the West. Yeah, or the audiences. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, and the like Harry has obviously this is another great theme that Rowling does not just in this book but throughout the entire series is the way Harry views his parents. Um mm, yeah. Harry has obvi- like obviously he has no memory of his father or mother, uh but he wants the them to be the best version of them in his mind. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and a lot of the people in his life kind of confirm that, right? They say, "Oh, like Yes, James was like James was very smart. He was a great Quidditch player, um, and uh, Lily was like so loving, and uh, she was like top of the class and all that stuff. And they were great people, and he truly believes that for himself. And this this comes this comes up in this this book specifically in the very start when Marge, like Aunt Marge, is you know making comments on his parents, 
in a very, very negative light. And he, he stands <laughs> up for them and he defends them. It comes up again when, you know, in this book, closer to the end or closer to like around the middle when, when Snape catches him going to Hogsmeade or almost catches him going to Hogsmeade when he shouldn't have. And he's like saying like, oh, talking about his father and all that stuff. And Harry defends them or defends his dad. And then this theme will come up later on and on as he discovers more about who his parents were and the kind of people they were. And, mm. you know, it, it becomes a little bit darker themed in in the future because sure, yeah, yeah, his yeah. father wasn't exactly who he thought he was. That's a really, really cool thing that J.K. Rowling introduces kind of in this book is the way that someone who's never met their parents wants to view their parents as. Mm, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he, he's just piecing it together through his own kind of pseudo memories, memorabilia, what other people say about them. Maybe journals. Yeah. And then just even the memory of like the big thing that happened around. Was he, was it, it wasn't his birthday, was it? Was it his first birthday? I thought it was his first birthday. Anyway, at Godric Hollow's or Hollow. Yeah, yeah. It was his first birthday on okay. Halloween. Yeah. Oh, oh. Or okay. it was after his first birthday. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Aunt Marge too in this segment because uh, David and I have chuckled in the first two books about how, and this is obviously intentional, so it's satisfying how cartoonishly evil and stupid um, the Dursley. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Dursley. Side it's a little over the top. Like <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. It's it's fine, and everyone enjoys yeah. it. But it's like, oh right, like well, it's just clearly. Could you be more? Well, you couldn't miss it. Like, but you like the neon you know, sign flashing in the dark room. Hello, representing the um, people <laughs> yeah. who are in one form or another not worthy of you. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think the way she sets up those characters is great too. Right, like mm. we don't have any payoff right now, but eventually we will. You know, spoilers yeah. for future books. Yeah, but, true, um, true. Making them as unlikable as possible has payoff. Like I feel like every character and everything that Rowling has written always serves a purpose in a very organic way. Yes, in defense of the cartoonish. Now, I don't I, I I don't know if I've ever met anyone quite as obtuse as Vernon. Yeah. Uncle Vernon. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but I have met I, I and I'm I'm serious. I have met people who are close. I have met people who are just stubborn, not thoughtful, set in their ways, supremely uneducated. Don't we call and, those the <laughs> the hard-headed, hard-hearted? Yes. 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 And I mean, they're not the wolves. Oh, no, soft-headed. Soft-headed, hard-hearted, yes. right, yes. So, hard-hearted, but like people in the grocery store or in the convenience store who are uh, just berating a sales associate or a clerk over something so stupid and uh, so little. Can you imagine carrying that much money? Uh, yeah. So, so even though the Dursleys themselves are cartoons or, cartoon, or caricatures, I definitely feel that the pain of, and and in a more realistic sense, I've had jobs in my life where I have felt more intelligent and more thoughtful and more able than people who were bosses of me. And that's a very, very insufferable thing to feel. Yeah, I think eventually just had to come to the fact that, you know, certain people want it more. Want. To be bosses. Yeah, but 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 like with Harry's situation with the Dursleys, he doesn't have a choice, right? And so obviously in jobs, you do at at the end you have a choice, 
which is good. <laughs> but it's kind of tragic with Harry being trapped. And then it's like you extend it out. Like you don't have to be as caricatured as the Dursleys to have. But isn't like, that a such a familiar young... childhood feeling of being yeah, like, it is. you're 13 and you're like, I don't really want these people to be in charge of my life anymore. Mm. And yet they totally are. And you're completely dependent on them. And it's really an emotionally tumultuous. Yeah, that's true. Like, by the time I was 18, I was like, bye-bye. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm True. like, I'm not staying. And I love my parents. They're amazing people who I enjoy a lot, but, you know. But clearly, even by age 13, well, by age 11, but even by age 13, Harry is just better than the Dursleys. Or at least Harry sure thinks so. Yeah, but. I mean, he also is, but you know what I mean? Like, we're definitely <laughs> yeah. given the impression that Harry knows he's way better. Yeah, fair. I guess in the story, there, there is something in hubris there for Harry right. to chew on. But in, as a real life thought, like how I just, I I have some, fe- I have some shared feelings with someone like Harry in that scenario. Oh, oh for sure. Where for you sure. have that kind of Uncle Vernon type who gets to say something over you, you know, which is just the suckiest. So anyway, though, I did want to ask a thing about Harry because you brought it up. I think it was in the uh, plot rundown. You brought up how he used like a situation with Vernon to try and get him to sign the note to go to Hogsmeade, right? Because the, the, yeah. he needs he needs guardians to sign the note so he can go to Hogsmeade because third years are allowed to go to Hogsmeade. And I, 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 this kind of, I don't know, made me think a little bit about Harry's change or growth. Like this is like, some guile and some subversive attempt at like negotiating almost on, on this Harry's is that part. teenage feeling of like, I kind of want to sneak out for the day or like, I, I want my little rebellions mm-hmm. because I, my rebellions are actually an assertion of my independence. Less little, little shouts into the void. No, I'm, I'm my own person <laughs> now. Right. I, or as that old song goes, I did it my way, mm. right? Like, yeah, it's great awareness on his part because, like, he knows that this, like, Aunt Marge is coming and he can't stand her, she can't stand him. But you know, because she's related to the the Ver- like the Vernons, that that's why she's coming. And um, all he, Harry knows that all Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia want is like peace in the household, and no one mm-hmm. to know that Harry is a wizard. So he like leverages that and like it's it's such great awareness of his situation and kind of being able to think on his feet being like, okay, I'll be on my best behavior. I won't mention anything about magic. And if I do it, will you sign this thing that's going to be beneficial for me? Um, I think around kids as young as like age four or oh, five. Oh, they start negotiating. Negoti- yeah. Oh, but like totally they, they start negotiating, but in really dumb ways, right? Like. <laughs> in ways that don't make sense and they end up being the loser right like you could tell you could tell like like a four-year-old i'll give you this like i'll give you this shiny quarter if you give me that gross like dirty bill you know like right like there's there's that but then you know as kids grow up and they learn how to negotiate better they're aware of what they're good at what is needed from the other side and what they can do to get what they want right oh yeah oh for sure well yeah i was gonna say we're all diplomats at the end of the day, we're all diplomats. I'm glad you used that word because I was going to say that this is a um, this is a good little snapshot of the beginning of the idea of negotiation between you know young person and older person, and and obviously that extended into life. Like so much of well, so much of life is peaceful life is yeah. negotiation. And Alex and I have both worked with kids, and one of the 
one of the things I tried to do and and be inspired by with working with kids is um, meet them fairly, even though I'm in charge of them. So if I have to decide that today we're not going to a park that a lot of them want to go to, I negotiate, okay, okay, well, on tomorrow we'll go to that park. Or right, like, right. I try to extend the fairness principle into domains that they can both understand and then feel seen and appreciated in. Right. And, and that takes negotiation or it's like, hey, uh, and, and I mean, obviously kids can be quite excitable. And right now at work, I have a couple of nine-year-old twin girls who are chatterboxes who don't stop keep saying what they want to do when they want to do right and it is it's just a total skill i'm i guess i'm talking more from like um uncle vernon's end which he obviously isn't particularly adept in but <laughs> right just like the skill of the adult in that scenario being like okay you want to do video games or you want to do foosball if i say it for this long can you commit to doing it for only that long? And they say yes. And then if they go past, it's like, well, you didn't meet your end of the bargain. So next time you ask, we're not going to do it. Do you right. understand? And then they start. It's just little things like that. It's like allowing the leash and then giving them walk. enough rope yeah. to hang themselves. Right? Okay. That's <laughs> that's a bad out of context, really true <laughs> fiction quote right there. But you know what I mean, Alex? Just that, that mm. little like negotiation that you have to have with kids. I don't know. For some reason, that little scene in a book reminded me of that little thing you have to do with um children oh totally and but like obviously in the book you're so sided with harry because it's like aunt marge is completely unreasonable so it's like oh like well and that's no... how kids feel that, that adults are completely unreasonable they actually just feel that yeah yeah but but i think the problem with that is that often it is true yeah like often there is an uncle vernon tiber and marge is like uh children should be seen and not heard kind yeah. of thing like sit down shut up uh, I don't want to talk. I'm the boss. Listen to me. Do what I say. How about neither seen nor heard. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah go. that won't be the last Arrested Development. Uh, oh right, <laughs> we're going I, down that, that dark, dark road. <laughs> uh, but I think I would say like a huge value and virtue in my job, and it helps me actually. It helps me in all of my relationships in my life with everyone. Is how to get a kid to understand that I'm right about something without just saying I'm the boss listen to me like walking through through walking them through the steps of safety or other people's interests or you know there's other kids in the room maybe they want to use this thing too all of that goes into negotiation right it's like giving kids enough respect to walk them through the entire scenario of why at the end I'm still right and they're wrong but at least I've demonstrated it through conversation with them and, and taking their opinion seriously enough to talk to them about. And on top of that, you know, I would say two, three percent of the time, I'm wrong. Right. The kid is right and I'm wrong and I just missed something or I have an oversight. And then I improve my own thing for the future by actually engaging in that exercise in the first place with right. the kid, right? Right. And then they respect you more too, probably. Oh, for sure. And yeah, that's how you build credibility yes. with children is you take them seriously. And that, that comes back in the story, right? Like... Uh... Like, you can see, like, the adults that are wrong in situations but don't do anything to correct it are villains and yeah. are the ones that Harry doesn't like, you know? Like, obviously, uh, Uncle Vernon and Petunia, but then also, you know, Snape um, is a big one. But then the ones that admit their mistakes or apologize to Harry for stuff, like Lupin, like, he apologizes to Harry for not letting Harry fight the Bogart or the Bogart. Like Humphrey. That, we call him Humphrey. Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> I think that was a, that's a great, 
like part of the book where even me as a, a reader when I was that age, I was like, wow, this adult figure just apologized to Harry. Like, yeah. I respect this this character so much. And like as soon as that happened, Lupin was an instant favorite character of mine. Oh, wow. Definitely. And well, <laughs> I have some glowing things to say about him myself. There we go. There we go. <laughs> but um, there's only other one other big thing that Harry accelerated in my mind. Other than his quips, uh, we so I just want to say it now. We brought up before in other episodes. One of our favorite things about Harry is that he just is never quite above, like insulting Malfoy. There, there is something about a great clapback <laughs> that just you know should never. You know, if someone comes at you, you just take them down with a good comeback. Like, well, and it adds an element of realism to Harry's character. Exactly. <laughs> like, who doesn't like a good the comeback? One? The one I wrote down, and I'm sure you can think of your own favorite one. It's um, he's talking to Malfoy. And I think it's around a Quidditch time or something. It's like, pity you can't attach an extra arm to yours. Then it can yeah, catch yeah, a snitch yeah. for you. Because <laughs> Malfoy's arm is hurt from right. Buckbeak attacking him. So it's Harry Yeah, well, because like, I, think, I think Malfoy's like inspecting Harry's new firebolt. And is like, oh, does it come with a parachute in case you fall? You know, making fun of Harry for falling off his broom when <laughs> yeah. the Dementors came. So it's like, oh, like, why don't you, like, does, can you attach an arm to yours so it can catch a snitch for you? And it's so, so fucking British, too. Yes. Hey, it's just oh. the, like, the <laughs> yes. British, I'm trying We're... to analyze it on the fly here, but it's something like the ability to just imply a total inability or stupidity or thoughtlessness on the part of your adversary by just asking a leading question or something yeah. that that is, like, something that it's isn't necessarily a, related. But it's could a be... deeply contextualized observation, <laughs> exactly, perhaps. Exactly, like... Like why would yeah because it's not that's really um, the the what wit is deeply contextualized observation exactly yeah so I I love that so anyway if if any more come to your mind it's kind of like a running thing or any little uh, but you say clap back or the lip or yeah, <laughs> the yeah, thing yeah. that Harry demonstrates clap back is like internet talk but that's okay know. that's where you can find really true fiction on the internet that's true we're there <laughs> that's where we hang out and we're talking yeah and where we're talking exactly. But since you, since you already brought up Harry, what Harry talked about in the, in the Shrieking Shack, I wanted to talk about the scene with Harry and Buckbeak and Hagrid at the beginning because at least the way I interpreted it in the book, in the movie they make it seem like an accident. I don't know. I'm going to choose to interpret it in a more positive way that Harry volunteers to be the first one to interact with Buckbeak in that and like all the other kids think he's kind of brave for this and they all take a step back and they're like a little bit wondered. And I just thought that this is... um. This is something I've been thinking a lot about, about how um, I like that like, he shows initiative and isn't passive in, in his own life, in a sense. Like, I know that that's making oh. it quite a broad theme for something he does. And I'll so, like, this is a stupid thing. I know it's stupid, but it's still a little pet peeve of mine because COVID has been ravaging our lives this year. And this has been, there's just, obviously you hear the get out of here, 2020. We, we don't yeah, want you anymore, yeah. 2020. We're tired of you. And yet, the pet peeve of mine is that I feel like that is paying lip service to you not being an agent in the world at all to handle. Now, obviously, with lockdowns and with, you know, keeping people safe, we definitely do literally have less autonomy as a, as a citizen yes. than we generally do. But I just still feel like <laughs> all I want to say to that when I hear it is like, you know, 2021 could suck bad too, right? <laughs> or, or hey, it could be worse. Yeah. And then you could all be looking nostalgically back at this time when we still could, you know, 
basically care for ourselves because the government was injecting huge amounts of capital yeah, into exactly. the economy. So I want to give a cultural reference here, Alex, that I know you'll appreciate to give a launch pad to any of your thoughts on any of this. But in the song Ahead by a Century by Tragically Hip, there's a line in it that really resonates. It's like, no dress rehearsal. This is our lives. Right? Yeah, well, and, and, exactly. And like, 2020, for all of its horribleness is still a year in our lives where we have to figure out what kind of people we want to be and what we want to do and what kind of buck beaks we want to go interact with of our own choice and not just have it be foisted upon us. I'm not ashamed to say that I've had an incredible 2020. Sure, sure, sure. I'd say it's one of the best years of my life. And I think it wasn't because it was easy. It was because I wasn't playing the victim to 2020. I was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride this like, mm-hmm. like you know, to Valhalla. Let's go, like mm-hmm. you know, you live your life. Well, and one of the trappings of comfort is passivity. Yes, right. And so mm-hmm. I just love that. That is what that scene made me think of. So anyway, sorry. What do you think about all that, Alex? Yeah, I think like you know, Harry has shown in in the books previous and in in this one like an, an incredible amount of bravery. Um, and as well loyalty because it's really loyalty that I think loyal his loyalty and friendship to Hagrid that pushes him to be the first one to volunteer for that to to you know uh, bow to Buckbeak and like pet the hippogriffs and whatever because um, you know Hagrid is one of his closest friends and Hagrid suddenly has this job to be you know a teacher which is something I think there's a line in the book where um Harry's like Hagrid must be so proud of this because he was expelled in his third year and uh, is is seen as an underqualified wizard to but to be be seen as a teacher was probably like a great brought brought a lot of happiness to Hagrid so he wants Hagrid to succeed um, but at the same time he's aware of Hagrid's shortfalls and or shortcomings <laughs> yes um, but yeah. you know there's it's that extra bravery and his loyalty to Hagrid that pushes him to do this thing that no one else wants to because he wants the he wants Hagrid to look good and he wants Hagrid to be a good teacher. I just want to speak to that for a moment because I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is we need people who are who will like hype hype us. Real friends like they 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 like glory in your wins. They're like, "Yeah, look at how much you're accomplishing. Like, I'm so proud of you." Like, they feel happy when you succeed. And, like, we see that for Harry with Hagrid, right? Like, maybe Hagrid's not your typical, like, straight-up-the-mountain success story, but, like, he's a pretty big success story in terms of the friends that he gets to have, Mm -hmm. in terms of the life that he gets to live, in terms of the fact that he gets to live in the place that he loves and serve the people he cares about. Well, I want to tie this back into, David, it's, like, one of your first points you made about Sirius and, like, how do we live? Because obviously we've talked a lot about how, as almost a pinnacle value, you and I have for choice. And this specific scenario, Harry chooses to volunteer for a potentially dangerous thing, like interacting with Buckbeak, to because he knows he wants to live in a way that promotes Hagrid because he knows Hagrid's value and virtue and like has seen his character. And Hagrid and, and, and lives in a friend. way to promote Harry. Yeah, and, and so... It's not like Harry doesn't have the same potential worries or fears that all the other kids have about a hippogriff with a sharp beak and big wings and hooves. Like, it's a scary-looking creature. And they did a great job in the movie with it, I thought. I thought it looked really good. That's my, I think, the most iconic scene for me 
in this, I don't know why, but this is the one that sticks with me is him approaching this, like the hippogriff. Yeah. And yeah. they did come out when you and I were growing up and like, it was kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. I never really sat down and watched the, all the movies until much later in life, but that's the scene that sticks yeah. out to me from the youth, my youth. But, but you'll notice too. So it's like Harry has all the same reasons as everyone else to not volunteer. Like he has the same excuse, let's say, or, or, you know, he could give the same uh, explanation as to why anyone else didn't raise their hand or say it. And that's really what separates Harry from the other kids in, in the in the school, in the movie, or in the books, in, in the story. Why he's the hero is because he chooses these things over and over and over. And I'm just really motivated by the idea of, again, it's a pet peeve. And, and I'm sure because both of you know me really well, this won't be a surprise to you. Like, I just don't like comments that make it seem like you're totally okay with being a passive observer with what's happening to you or your life, right? Like, so <laughs> this is stupid. I know it's stupid, but I I bristle a bit when I hear um, expressions like, we'll have to see what happens. Right. Or yeah. whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Or it's just like removing yourself. Or that's life, I guess. Yeah, like... And and I and obviously that specific one, based on the tone and the context, it can be totally like whatever, yeah. <laughs> right? No, no. But it's like things that remove you as an agent or an important variable as in the formula in your of your life, own yeah. life. Personal I, agency. I guess I feel sorry. I, I feel I feel saddened by that concept because it's just it's it's like there's no dress rehearsal, right? Yeah. This mm. is our lives. And I just, I love, love, love that that's one of the motifs of the Harry Potter character. Not just even the books, but him specifically as a character in the books. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Okay, so Alex, tell me your thoughts on the character of Remus Lupin in this book. Well, like I said before, he's one of my favorites in this book. You know, he's... He's he's the one adult that really shows a lot of uh, trust and respect to Harry, and I think he he, he it really shows um, the importance of adults treating kids like peers. You know, when they're when they're at an able age, and you know, obviously, if you're like very young, you, kids are still kind of defenseless, and they need lots of like they need to be taken care of. But around the age of thirteen, I think that's a good good start to being able to treat and talk to kids like they are adults you know and that's that's something that uh lupin does a lot of in this book he i don't think he ever treats harry less than what harry is you know Mm, it's not like i'm the teacher you're the student so that's how it goes he he really tries to have conversations with harry that's probably one of the reasons why harry is so i don't know like he's so he feels a connection with lupin and he later learns out that lupin was like a great friend of his father's, which kind of reinforces all that. But then, you know, just just because of the way Lupin treats him, and he he seeks out Lupin for help, you know, mm. on how to fight the Dementors. And well, moreover, Lupin defends the kids against other adults like Snape who aren't treating them well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which um, is like a huge thing for kids because like they they feel so powerless in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, he's able to joke around like. E- e- like, I think the kids see Lupin as a fun adult, you know, when the very first lesson where he's like, all right, imagine Snape in your grandmother's clothes to Neville. 
and that like that obviously it makes all the kids laugh and it's a funny thing but um it, it also it's a great way to teach his lesson as well you know being able to um you know be a good teacher be a good role model but also be a good you know kind of peer as well this is something i wanted to just mention about this whole book in general is it really introduces the the longing that young people and all of us have for affirmation from people we respect mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yep right and and how much actually i think being a mentor too can can be giving that that feeling to people right if if you pay attention to young people and are like care about them and and want to see them succeed that means a lot to people mm-hmm. well and in the story it it <laughs> it makes the kids hate snape more right especially with the way that snape has been treating hermione in a lot of this book the contrast between lupin and snape couldn't be more stark to them and that's like part of I don't know, like it reminded me definitely of just different, I mean, it's literal in this case, like I obviously liked some teachers more than other teachers, right? And it just, it was so bizarre to me that you could have this vastly different personalities, but all hired to teach kids. Like what, if you could, if there are people this good as teachers, why would you ever hire a Snape? kind of thing? Or like, how Mm. did this person ever get a job here? Kind of thing. Now, obviously- Snape has his own interesting arc in this book with his with his grudge and his you know the vengeance he feels against James Harry's dad but I don't know like I just thought it was interesting as not even a symbol but like a literal showing of the difference between teachers or mentors as you were saying right David like, yeah, and just yeah. how pedagogy even is so different with someone who respects you yeah oh, and it, it's, everything changes you as a student learn so much more from someone that you like and respect and a lot of the time i don't think it even comes down to the knowledge of the teacher as well right like in in the harry potter world and the lore stape is a very very accomplished wizard he's incredibly talented in potions he's obviously very talented in dark arts and defense against the dark arts and whatever but because of just the way he teaches potions is always a tough subject for harry and ron and you know neville because just of the way Snape teaches. But you can tell just at a different teaching style that Lupin does, like they, they learn so much that year and it it, com- it comes back in the future again, like in future books, Harry is able to utilize so much knowledge that he learned from Lupin in the future yeah. because of how great Lupin was as a teacher. And just on that notion about potions, <laughs> notion about potions, uh, <laughs> even just like as a motif, potions... And, and Snape himself being a kind of a beta in all of these stories, like potions are a kind of unmanly right. type of thing as opposed to the defense against the dark arts or potions. And like, you know, this is a little bit gendered, but in history, like poison was considered the woman's murder weapon, yeah, right? Like, like how you, if you're not physically strong enough to overpower, you can always use chemistry or chemicals or potions to have your way. And so I think it's interesting as just a storytelling device to have Snape that kind of character be a potions teacher like i don't even know if rowling thought about that even but just Mm -hmm. how and then you can see how his so much of snape's resentment is in line with that kind of character you know yeah Yeah. snape snape has always wanted to be the defense against the dark arts teacher yeah right but he was just never stronger or better or um more respected respected yeah i think the respected was the one yeah 
And I love that point too, Alex, because I, I, another quote from the book I wrote down because it appealed to me personally is, um, this is the narration talking about Lupin. No one cared if his robes were patched and frayed. His lessons were just as interesting as the first. And so my note there is like, he just kept, he had a, he started with and maintained a high quality of work. And teachers like that have a presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, I think it was Intro to Sociology. It's, it's essentially the teacher that made me switch to get that degree is she was so engaging. Like, I remember the first lecture, she basically said, if you're not going to come to class, get the fuck out now. And we're yeah. talking about like a class of like an intro class of like 300 people, right? <laughs> and it was just like, I was like, who is this lady? Like, she is yelling at us on the first day. <laughs> like, just, just, but, but like, that was about the first three classes. She was kind of like this, weeding out people who couldn't take it. And then definitely the best teacher I ever had in university. She was so good. She was so entertaining. She gave life to the concepts and the principles. She knew her stuff, but she was willing to, she took advantage of all teachable moments she used her body well. She like walked around right, and like right. fluttered even of the of the points. So she was so good. There was a day she couldn't make it. She videotaped an entire lecture, an hour lecture of herself in front of an empty crowd, and it came up on the screen for all of us. And not a single student left the auditorium. Wow! They stayed for the lecture because she and she even like t- talked to the people she usually talked to. Oh, like, really? Called out their name, <laughs> like stuff. Wow. Like, yeah, it was really funny. So anyway, that just that line of like. It didn't matter what Lupin looked like because he was just as interesting all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, obviously, that appeals to my function and presence and quality of content bias over the vanity bias that obviously someone like Malfoy would care about. Or like, I think it was even Malfoy who points out, like, look at his robes. Why is he our teacher? Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I just yeah. love that <laughs> motif. Yeah, just like for me in university, I'm thinking back, you know, the teachers that I liked and enjoyed listening to, and uh, they were the ones where I didn't fall asleep in their class. <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> there you go, yeah. As David will know from, we've brought, it, we've brought it up lots on the podcast, just the superficialities are so irrelevant to me. And, and, it's, and it's Lupin's ability to care about the kids, but also give them a good education. Like it, it, Think about it. Like, it is Lupin who teaches Harry how to use a Patronus. Well, Harry is pretty hooped in this in this book without the Patronus, right? It is Lupin who teaches him that. Now, Lupin has to, if we're going to, like, as a, as a symbol, like, Lupin has to be a pretty solid wizard himself to be able to teach a difficult charm like this to a young student and that would suggest that Lupin works hard at his craft. He's not just a, he doesn't go through the motions. He's not just a fair weather wizard, right? Like he, he works hard. He tries. And it's a point that we made when we did our David Copperfield episode, but um, David Copperfield, AKA Charles Dickens, cause it's essentially an, an autobiography of himself yeah. Yeah. is saying he felt a little bit shy when he got good as a writer. So the more praise he got, the harder he worked to earn it. And that's like mm. something I feel like Lupin has, right? Like Lupin would be the kind of person who, and especially because he's got his own tragic flaw, the harder he work, 
the the better praise he gets from the kids, I feel the harder he would choose to earn it, as opposed to like the total opposite in the previous book was Lockhart. Yeah, right. That like Lockhart oh, is the Lockhart. total total character inverse mirror of of Lupin. It's actually way. great because I I think that's on purpose too. It's just introducing a mirror concept. It's teaching children about mirrors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a great point because uh, you know David Copperfield does a bit of magic himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one, Alex. Good one. Yeah, I think another really like cool theme and quite quite a deep theme that Rowling introduces with the character of Lupin is just how in society there's there's gonna there's social outcasts or things that uh, based off of things that people can't control. You know, and that's, yeah. And like in, in the story, it's like people don't trust or at the end of the, the book, uh, parents aren't going to trust their kids being taught by a werewolf and werewolves are shunned in society. And Dumbledore even says like, it's your, like, who who are people going to trust? Two 13-year-old wizards and a werewolf or Professor Snape, right? Um, yeah. And it just shows, yeah, it, right. it's introducing this theme that um, there's people in society that, you know, don't have a voice or are looked down on or, or seen as less than human because of... Or untrustworthy that, even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Based off of something that they can't control or that they were, yeah, might have been Yeah, that's a good point. And, that's a great point. Well, like, it can be something as obvious as, like, um, at least for kids, like a physical disability. Kids ask questions like, why does that... Mommy, why does that person look like that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it can be stigmatized overtly like that. But, yeah, like... um. I don't know. I, I guess the most immediate thing that comes to mind is like a physical or mental disability that would be impairing of a person to do that. But yeah, there could be all sorts of things. Or even, are... you know, some really attractive people feel like they're not listened to because they're <laughs> the only thing people care about them is their looks. Yeah, true. Right. True. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's really it's really sad because Harry's like, you're the best defense against a dark arts teacher we've ever had. And clearly he's his Lupin's his favorite teacher ever. But, you know, it doesn't matter how good he is at being a teacher when society already looks down on werewolves like that. Right. And, like the, the parents and, you know, the, the, the school governors or whatever are, good, are just going to see all of that good stuff as irrelevant based off of this big thing that he can't control. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and then that gets us into a conversation on things like PR and uh, like yeah. <laughs> management of people. What what really runs the you know the machinery of uh, sociology, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, no, that's good. What, like what co- what creates customs and are customs even something we can go without? Mm-hmm. Or well, maybe customs just change. Well, I mean that's something that I've and I, I think it's perfect, Alex, because I've specifically used the example of school or education boards of like. Really, the only thing that will ever change these kind of things is more and more parents or voters or electorates in these meetings or town halls being like, no, with their with my images, arms crossed, tapping their foot, being like, not good enough, do better, representative. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like imagine, imagine a world where even even some sort of tipping point of like sixty percent of the parents are like, well, you know what? Sure, we'll, we'll, werewolves can be dangerous, but. Lupin, we know this about him, and he's a good teacher, and we want you to keep him. You know, like just it, it, it really comes down to the citizens or the voters or the parents, like in whatever way, like in 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 a democracy, it comes down to the electors, the voters. In a school, it comes down to the parents. And I've talked about this before: this temperate impatience with driveling 
bureaucrats <laughs> talk on managing the people in some way. You know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. you know what? And 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 this is why I think our heroes, to bring it back to Harry Potter, like our heroes are the ones who stick up for these people, right? Like yeah. Hermione and 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 Harry and Ron to the extent that he does because he's out of it a bit in the climax. Like they're they these are the people who stick up for the Lupins of the of the society, right? Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not a mistake that they're our heroes. Yeah, the more I think about it, it's like it's actually kind of like a very obvious parallel is like the the being a werewolf in the Harry Potter world is kind of like having HIV or an STI. You know, it's it's like you're be- you got bit by it as a child, so now you're infected and you you have the possibility of spreading it to other people, but it's something inside you, people can't really see it, but it causes you to be sick, you know. And, um, you know, uh, I, I believe Prisoner of Azkaban was written or it was released in 99, but it uh, it's set like in the Harry Potter universe time. It's set in 93, I believe. So it's like uh, it's around the time where, you know, it's like it's set around the time. Like, I don't know, like kind of like when Magic Johnson came out and said he that sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. HIV positive, you know. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's a really good analogy, actually, because, yeah. It is, it's something, and, and, uh, you know, obviously some people can contract something like AIDS as an adult when they know it exists, but also like there are lots of people who are just born with AIDS because their parents have it or something, right? Like this is Mm -hmm. one of the massive heartbreaking tragedies of so much of life in Africa is kids just born with AIDS because their parents have AIDS kind of thing, or I'm not sure exactly how it works, but yeah, that's a great point, Alex. I hear they have drugs now where it's basically like... You can live a normal life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely been improved. I thought you, I thought you just inject yourself with money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the South Park remedy. That's the great line. We got the cure. All you need is cash. Lots and lots of cash. <laughs> Run for a cure. Yeah. Well, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit, too, about the whole Dementor Patronus aspect of this book, because obviously it's very deep. It's a hugely, it might be the deepest, well, no, it's hard to say. It's one of the deepest parts of this book in terms of metaphor and um, existential observations because the Dementors, what do they do? They rip your soul, they rip happiness out of your soul, right? Like they basically, I don't remember exactly the details of the book, but they take your happy memories, they take your goodness, they take your, you know, like all of the things positive about your spirit get removed through the Dementor's kiss, I believe it is, or or mm. whatever they do, they well, suck it I, up. I think it was like their presence does that, and then the Dementor's kiss was just, yeah. it straight up takes your soul out. Versus right. the Patronus being the thing that protects you from those things. Now, obviously, mm. in real life, the Dementors are just those ethereal things that just drain you, you drain you make you suffer and doubly so the ones that you do to yourself yeah. <laughs> you know or have people yeah. in your life that do to you but just you know the little pains or anguishes or things that just suck life out of you like that's what it's a literal it's it's an expression we have for this kind of thing and then the patronus representing the things that protect you from those things so that's how i would want to frame it for your thoughts on that alex yeah i think the dementors are such a cool introduction to the harry potter universe because you know they're 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 introduced kind of as the guards of ask they're, they're introduced as the guards of azkaban yeah, yeah, which yeah. is like painted at the, the start of the book as like they're good right they're the ones that keep you know the prisoners and the the criminals locked up and uh they're kind of there to catch criminals and in a functional society that's kind of what you want you want 
things or you want devices in place or people in place that keep bad people in check, right? Mm-hmm. Or keep them locked yeah. up, right? That I would argue that's that's what every positive Western society wants. Yes, um, yeah, then, oh, for sure. But then they are shown as a character very, very quickly that they don't care who they go through in order to complete their goal, mm-hmm. right? Um, they They board the train and obviously there's a bunch of kids on this train and they're not serious black but they don't care they're there to suck the happiness out of these kids um when harry has the quidditch match where he falls off the broom because the dementor swarm in there's like i think i don't remember who mentions it but they're like they say i think it might have been lupin and he said oh uh they had been hungering for happiness for so long that they sense that there are suddenly like so many positive emotions and happiness coming from the quidditch stadium that they moved over there even though they weren't supposed to so they're shown as like this kind of force that, you know, is is supposed to be good, but they don't care to them, to the Dementors, the ends justify any means. Mm, yes. And yeah. that that's another really cool theme that I think J.K. Rowling introduces in this kid story is that, you know, not all good things will do good things, right? Yeah. Or it's like things that are kind of monofunction don't work well in a different area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure yeah you know and it, it it makes it like as when you read it as a kid and even looking reflecting back on it as an adult it's just like there's no black and white to anything right even though they they have like a their goal is something positive the, their means to get there can be highly destructive and there's so many kinds of those kinds of things in the real world that make you reflect on you know and and open your eyes and make make it feel like not ever not there's a lot of issues that aren't just black and white you know yeah 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 Is it, well we've talked about that a lot in this podcast but that's kind of like the next step in level evolution that's leveling up in consciousness when you realize that oh it's not us versus them it's just various degrees of different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and just them being the the creatures the dementors being the creatures that suck life out of you and suck goodness out of you the patronus being the antidote to that and i just love to think about like what are my patronuses like what are the things and it's so perfect in harry potter that it's a patronus that he thinks was his dad or he got from his dad or he has his dad's patronus right like his is a stag which i believe was his dad's at least the animal that his dad turned into right yeah yeah and so and so like obviously when I think about the things that suck my life away or give me pain or suffering, mental or physical or anything, it is things like my parents taught me that make me feel yeah. better. Or it is books, right? right? It is the um, behemoths of the culture before me, like Dickens or um, Dostoevsky, that give me the kind of bulwark against... I even... Okay, get this. Check out this anecdote. anecdote. In my first year in Korea because I was at my peak cathartic frustration with existence and right, <laughs> I right. was in love with a girl who it was unrequited and I just was feeling my most emo, I guess. I just drew this picture of like all of the terrible things in the world that could hurt you, like war, frustration, anger, jealousy, like all the both physical and mental things that just get in the way of, of living a good life. And all the things beneath at the bottom of this picture were good things like happiness, friendship, caring. And then 
all of these terrible things were falling out of the sky to destroy all of these great, all these awesome things. But there was a shield in between, and the shield was called music. Oh, and in, there you in go. the shield called music, I wrote all the bands that I ever loved, <laughs> which contributed to the protection of the things that were good from the things that were terrible. There you, you go. You know, and so like I even made that, and so like music, essential. If I had to pick one thing, music in my life has been the Patronus nice. for me against mm. the Dementors. I like you that. know, I like that, and no one. Okay, well. Knows Here's a question for you that, that kind of ties into the book, and I'll I'll kind of I'll I'll, I'll wait for your answer before I tie it in. Um, okay. So you, you said that music is kind of your patronus in life. Yeah. Did you always realize that, or when you did realize it, did you did you realize that it was something you had all along? I I didn't I didn't know it in a reflective sense until I was probably you know, 17, 18 kind of thing, 16, 17, 18. Okay. But once I thought about it like that, once I could be that abstract about it, I definitely realized it was something that as an emergent quality was doing that for me ever since I could remember like three, four or five years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Cause like right at the end of the book, when Harry is talking to Dumbledore about his Patronus, Harry is like, Oh, I thought I saw my dad but in reality, it was really me. Mm. And and then Harry says, so I, I actually have it right here. He says, it was stupid thinking it was him, he muttered. I mean, I knew he was dead. And then Dumbledore says, you think the dead we loved ever truly leave us? You think that we don't recall them more clearly <laughs> than ever in times of great trouble? Your father is alive in you, Harry, and shows himself most plainly when you have need of him. How else, would you, uh, how else could you produce that particular Patronus? Prongs wrote again last night. And then uh, he says another line later is like, you know, Harry, in a way you did see your father last night. You found him inside yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, like, I, that's perfect. I, thought, I wrote that down, too. I have that exact yeah. quote. On there you go. Too. There so you go. good job, Alex. We're on the same wavelength. There we nice. go. I, I, I remember reading that the very first time or listening to my teacher read that. And then every time I've read this book, this is probably probably my, like my sixth or seventh time reading Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm. Um, and it's right at the end of the book. It's page 312 of 317. Those things that Dumbledore said resonated with me so much. Yes. Just like yeah. how, you know, our Patronuses, the things that really make us happy or the things that we cling to and believe in, a lot of the time we don't have to go searching for them. They like no. We've had them our entire lives and we just didn't realize it yet. You know? Totally. I mean, even... <laughs> because it's my favorite and I know you love it too. And we talk about it all the time. Like this is kind of the same little thing I feel in star Wars when Luke is in the trench run and he hears the voice of Obi-Wan telling him to turn off his computer and trust his feelings and trust the force. And you're getting like this remembrance of the, 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 knowing what to do from thinking about a person who's no longer there, but who meant something to, you know, obviously in star Wars, it's way shorter and a little more cheesy, it's mm-hmm. it's developed better in Harry Potter, but yeah, just that that connection to your history, your past, specifically your parents, even who have given you something, and they're never truly gone, and they're there when you need them most. And obviously, that's even itself some great foreshadowing to the climax of Goblet of Fire, <laughs> right? Like yeah. just some more genius storytelling in that line from Dumbledore. But just, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I had that line written down from Dumbledore too about just I love the way Dumbledore talks to Harry at the end of these books, because Dumbledore just gives Harry a different way to think about what just happened to him. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I yeah. mean? 
Like Dumbledore is a consciousness raising educator yes. slash mentor for Harry because he never like I don't know, I haven't read all the books, but he doesn't it's not like he says Harry's wrong or he disagrees. He just gives Harry a different way to think about what happened to him. Right? Which is beautiful. Yeah, he never so. he never like in in these reflective kind of conclusions, he never just straight up gives Harry an answer unless it's a factual thing. Yeah. Like yeah. He lets Harry come to that conclusion on his own, but kind of guides him to mm-hmm. think about it in that way and i think that's like dumbledore is not in this book very much and he's honestly not a very important character in this book but it, it kind of builds upon this whole like it it sets up all the future books later about how in in the future books dumbledore really becomes another part of harry like yeah. in in a sense that james was always a part of harry and it's really cool to see that that evolution For sure. in, in, in that's a good that's a good point that's a very good point all right so i just wanted to give even just, you know, a minute talk to um, the Divination and Trelawney, because I think she's weird, and obviously there's some great plot in there of, like, Trelawney not knowing what she's saying. But I don't know. I was a little bit ambivalent of what to think about what Rowling was saying about Divination. And, well, no, maybe not. Maybe it's like you shouldn't know your future. But especially with, like, how Lavender and Parvati are easily impressed by the Divination class even though it's like clear that, and Hermione is the one who's most speaking, but it's like, well, that could mean anything or that could be anyone or that's just a vague saying, right? It's obviously very like fortune teller based or like you're getting yourself fooled. But then the note I made is in similar to X-Files, Lavender, Brown and Parvati, they want to believe, right? Mm -hmm. They already want to believe in Trelawney and in Divination. So they're they're preconditioned to be willing to see anything she says in that light anyway, right? Yeah, and Hermione's the polar opposite. She exactly. already doesn't want to believe from the start. Well, maybe I'm answering my own question because Hermione is a hero and Pravati and Lavender aren't <laughs> in the book. So <laughs> maybe I'm getting that answer. But I don't know. Did anything strike you about Trelawney or Divination or anything? Yeah. Um, I guess this this will tie in a little bit with my thoughts on Hermione in this book. Um, mm. Because I think Hermione Perfect. was actually really interesting, and this is another great, like, great part of growing up is when you fight with your friends over things that are important, right? They're yes. not trivial yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I guess with divination, that's another kind of one of those. It's neither black or white kind of thing, mm. like, Fair. and <laughs> yeah, and and Dumbledore Dumbledore addresses this at the very end as well, right? Like, um, Harry's kind of talk. Harry's talking to Dumbledore, and he's trying to like say like harry's saying well if i stop Sirius and lupin from killing Pettigrew, does it make my fault that voldemort comes back kind of tying to trelawney's her prediction or whatever and dumbledore's like um you know the consequences of our actions are so complicated so diverse that predicting the future is really difficult so that you know that that i think i guess that kind of ties in with divination whereas like you know you you can be right but you can also be wrong but it's like whether or not you believe in divination and whether or not you believe in the words that Trelawney says, um, I think it gives so much power to you as the individual, right? Mm. Um, that your actions are going to be the reason for the final outcome and not, you know, not pre- predestination. Right, yeah, yeah, not that? predestined. Yeah, yeah, and that's perfect. That's actually, that totally clicks for me in, in something else in this book because even if the future were like fated or preordained, like the kind of combinations and permutations of action and uh, and intended consequence and unintended consequence and side effects are so vast and they multiply so quickly and you don't know what to expect. They're they're functionally 
like unknowable. So that's why you act with character because that's like in all of the ways we don't know how, how our actions will affect the world. We at least should try to do things of good ethical character, good virtue, like doing things that because we can't predict all the outcomes act in a way that we try to do our best to mitigate the bad ones and not, and not, and that's, and that's perfect because I want to tie that into why that's part of the reason why Harry doesn't want to kill Peter Pettigrew, right? He doesn't want to kill Peter Pettigrew in the same way life is too unpredictable. I would make the connection in the same way that Gandalf says it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand on Gollum, right? Go- Pe- Peter Pettigrew and Gollum are very similar <laughs> character types in, in these stories, you know, and Gollum obviously pay- played a big role in the destruction of the ring, which was the ultimate evil. And I can't remember exactly how Peter Pettigrew ends, but Peter Pettigrew becomes integral in bringing Voldemort back to the world, which, (laughs) I mean, this is maybe uh, circular reasoning, but Harry can't kill Voldemort if Voldemort isn't alive for him to kill. So (laughs) Peter Uh, Pettigrew bringing Voldemort back makes that happen. And if he kills Peter Pettigrew in this book... Maybe that doesn't happen, right? Right, and maybe H- Voldemort him sparing Pettigrew does have a like it, it. It has a thing in book seven, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it definitely pays off. Yeah, uh, so yeah, your point is exactly correct. I want to make that connection to you know Lord of the Rings and Gollum and just and just like because of this unpredictability of things, act well right? because you never know when it will pay off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I call it planting acorns. Right, mm. you plant one acorn, you wait long enough, you get a lot of acorns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's true right what kind of fertilizer do you use <laughs> <laughs> just the good old earth you just plant it there and you let it grow mm, yeah so crap <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good point so um you brought up hermione just quickly i loved narratively how in this book she is the one helping harry at the end and it mirrors nicely how in chamber of secrets ron is there like in chamber of secrets Hermione's petrified and Ron is there to help him in the climax of the book. But in this book, Ron is hurt and Hermione yeah. is there to it's, help it's him in the, the climax classic, of the no, book. No, Dumbledore says it's my turn with the controller. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I just, I don't know, like for some reason that just struck the right chord with me where it's like, it's just her turn. Yeah. Maybe it's just simple as like, it's Hermione's turn to step up and be the hero. And I mean, obviously with the time traveling thing, she's the hero in a much broader sense in this book, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. She was just great. Again, yeah. I mean, I I think Hermione is great, and and maybe in book seven we'll talk about why I think she's actually the hero of this entire story. But she just had so many great parts again in this in this one, like making sure you don't see your other selves when you're traveling through time, and we have to do this to help Buckbeak, and you know, just mm-hmm. and we talked about it in um, both Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. Just Hermione's commitment to reality saves them so many times. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. it's so great. Yeah, I think um, reflecting on on Hermione's story in this book, when I when I first like uh, li- heard the story uh, as as like a child, I was always on this. I was on the side of Ron and Harry for all the times that Hermione and them were fighting. You know, right? Like, when Hermione, like, I was mm. like, Hermione, how could you buy Crookshanks? Like, how? Like, like, of course, Crookshanks is going to go after Scabbards. Like, why don't you care about your friend's pet? And like, why why are you so stubborn on that? And Hermione, I cannot believe you snitched to McGonagall about Harry getting the firebolt. Yeah, uh, or right. Hermione, like, why are you so against Harry like having fun and being able to go to Hogsmeade and like using the Marauder's map? But then like, 
this kind of ties back to Neville in the first book. Mm. It's it's just like as an adult when you look back at it, it's just like Hermione isn't afraid to stand up for what is what she believes is right, and a lot of the time it is right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a good point. And, and, and I know that's I know so a lot of girls do. feel that way when they read Hermione because I remember a girl that was uh, I was very close with at one point talking to me about that particular. She loved Hermione, like she felt she identified with Hermione so much. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard to do at that age of like 12, 13, 14. All you want to do is be liked and have friends, right? Yeah, but Hermione's got... Well, I think Lucas said a few times she's the real hero hero of Harry Potter in his Mm -hmm. mind. Yeah. Well, there's many reasons why. uh, This book reinforces it more that she's she's a person of principle and sometimes maybe her her ways of acting... She's always well-intentioned and maybe sometimes her ways of doing these actions aren't the best or aren't the most tactful or aren't the most considerate of others, but they're always for the right reason, and she's so consistent with that that makes her such a strong character. Well, and she grows into that care and compassion and kindness as she gets older. Like, Mm -hmm. she does incorporate that into her personality without, like, jettisoning her core principles, which I think is a good way of growing up. And she shows a little bit of rebellion in this, too, for the, like... Like obviously in the other one she does rebel. Like she she brews the polyjuice potion and she sneaks out in the night and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah, right, right, right. Like in this one she she walks out of Trelawney's class, right? Like just straight up like quits, which is something Hermione would never do. But because she stands by that, she thinks divination sucks. She's gonna mm. stand by that. Um, yeah. Was it she slaps Malfoy? Well, and in the movie being... she punches him. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's so great seeing her evolve as this character that like. She's always about the rules and but she's like she she's able to put rules aside to really stand up for what she right, believes yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's like a very Dumbledorean thing too. Yeah. Follow the rules unless it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that kind of idea. Like most of the rules are there most of the time for good reasons and you yeah. should follow them. In the rare times you shouldn't have the wisdom to know that and then do it. Yeah. And it's it's such a stark contrast because you know Ron and Harry are going to break the rules. You yeah. know that that's a given. Yeah, but yeah. like with her, when Hermione does it, you know she really means it. Right. And that's why well, yeah. her character she, she so really noble. believes there's something better, bigger. That that reminds me of another little joke I heard Hitchens say once about when you think someone might be t- doing something interesting is it was if it's if it's out of character, you know, because if um he said, if you hear the Pope say he believes in God, you say, oh, the Pope's doing his job today. Right. But if you hear the Pope say he doesn't believe in God, you think he might be onto something. <laughs> when people yes. act or, or talk in conflict of their interests. Yeah. <laughs> so the very last line I have to read out because I just find it so powerful and so, well, I can't even use that adjective because it'll give away my point, but. So, at least on the, the one we have, page 275. Sirius responding to Pettigrew when Pettigrew's saying, Voldemort was going to kill me. What should I have done? And Sirius says, you should have died rather than betray your friends. And I just made the note that all the heroes of this story speak with the most clarity. Yeah. So, the people mm-hmm. who we cheer for, we want to win, and have an emotional connection with in a po- extreme positive way are always the ones who are the most clear and concise and to the point with their language and their verbiage and what they mean, as opposed to like in the books, the later the umbrages and the and the Ministry of Magic people and like the the muddled 
language used to trap people and trick people and keep them down. No, you should die instead of betray your friends, yeah. you little mm-hmm. weasel. And um, I just thought that, you know, the line, clarity is genius, strikes me as so powerful. Very, like, Orwellian in the positive sense of, like, Orwell talking about using clear language versus obscure language. You know, Einstein saying, if you can't explain it to a 10-year-old, you don't know it kind it's of true, thing. right? It's true. That was the last note I, I've made on this book. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that or anything else that came to mind, Alex. Yeah, it's just a, it's a great line and it, it builds connection between Harry and Sirius. Like this is the start of their relationship in this series. And that, def- that, that, that's a, that's a line that's very defining of Sirius's character, which is also defining of Harry's character, which is also yeah. defining of James's character and Lupin's character, right. and Dumbledore's character and all these characters that our heroes. are our heroes. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's a great setup for the future books and, um, builds, builds that really strong foundation for their, mm. for their relationship. Yeah. Good point. And then I have one last maybe controversial thought, but there's a part of me that feels like, well, now I don't think this because we've talked about this book now for a couple hours and it's so good. So, but there's a part of me that when I was reading this book, I was like, do I like the movie more than the book for this one? Because for the first two, for for both Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, I thought the books were head and shoulders better than the movies. But maybe, maybe, I, okay, I'll put it to you this way. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know if the movie's better, but I think the Prisoner of Azkaban movie is a, is a big step up from the previous two movies. I would agree with that for if sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it, like, I, I think I've talked about this with you is, um, yeah. like, I'm not going to argue whether the book or the movie is better. I, I, I honestly, I don't remember too much about the movie. Right. Um, but I, I do know that it was a very, it was a pretty faithful adaptation and it was a well made movie. But, Darker tone. Um, yeah. But I think uh, the thing about the movie that stood out to me when I first watched it, and I don't even remember when the movie came out. Um, let me look that up, actually. Uh, Probably like 2004 would be my guess. Yeah. So the movie came out, came out 2004. But I remember watching the movie and just my my entire thought at the end of the movie was, Wow, Hermione is really pretty in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like my standout yeah, thought. Yeah, I think that was my thought. I had that exact thought. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's funny. I, I think that like. Oh, who didn't? Who didn't have a a crush on Emma Watson? Yeah, right. Ryan, yeah, and it's age. it's just it's it's cool because like you grow up like I don't like not for you guys but like for me I grew up with these books and I grew up with these movies and I. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit younger than the characters were when the books came out, but like I could, I can totally relate to those things and kind of like that comment I said earlier about like when Harry noticed Cho or um, there's right, another yeah. one later on when when they're gonna go play in the Quidditch final and Cho's like good luck Harry and he 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 blushes from embarrassment or whatever <laughs> and it's just it's those things that I think it's those things that make Harry Potter so relatable to everybody is because everybody has gone through these thoughts and feelings before. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, just, yeah. I think it, the movie did a really good job at capturing that age. Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it was, it That's was true. like, like I said before, this is, this is the first book and probably movie that starts ha- exploring much darker themes and doesn't have yeah. a clear cl- cut, happy ending. And that's probably why this movie was so good is because like, it's a it's a great coming of age movie that explores dark themes and um 
yeah that's that's kind of that yeah. that, 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 yeah. Were, that was like my impression of the movie is like i don't remember all the details in the movie but i do remember liking it a lot and then just co- coming out of it being like wow hermione's so pretty <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 okay yeah like i i was too unreflected when i said that the movie is not better than the book but the movie is so much i would say like significantly better than the first two movies and more like maybe more a movie that i like as an adult as there you go to, yeah. yeah so i was like yeah and, uh, and yeah. now it's so hard like when i'm thinking about the books like i'm like you know when you read you're imagining how the characters look yeah and, yeah yeah and the set and all that like now when i read the book and I, it's like Her- hermione said this line i'm picturing emma watson right, totally. right, 100%, right, right, right yeah 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. i do yeah. that so i it's, it's i, I see so their faces when i read it into our yeah. brains that like the movies yeah. I, I think for this series the movies and the books are so intertwined together that mm-hmm. you have to look at them as a as a twofer now well, yeah, and I have to say, like, it. this book as a whole, Alex, I love listening to you talk about it because obviously at this stage, and even when David and I start reading them, we know the entire story, right? Yeah. Like, we know Philosopher's Stone all the way to Deathly Hollows. So we know that actually Sirius is good and nothing bad will happen to him, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're reading the book for the first time without, like, before Goblet of Fire has come out and nothing, and nothing further has happened in this story... You are terrified by the Grimm, yeah. right? Sirius is a scary character. Lupin, yep. you don't know exactly what to think about Lupin in that opening scene because he is the sleeping weirdo in the train, right? You, you, When Lupin embraces Sirius at the Shrieking Shack, you're like, oh my God, what a twist. He's actually the bad guy this whole time. I know, yeah, yeah. You're just like, it's all so good. It's such perfect storytelling for the reveals later that... I just like obviously now it's it's easy to gloss over because we know oh Sirius is the Godfather he'll be fine he's a, he's a later book we need to worry about him right but no mm-hmm. this book itself is such a perfectly encapsulated story which has its own twists and turns that we talk about like this is what's so perfect about Harry Potter is it's a seven book story and every book is its own story as well as it being a seven book story mm-hmm. so totally. so great in that way so anyway I don't know do you have any final thoughts on this book Alex. Yeah, I think I think if uh, any storytellers want to do time travel, this is the best way to do it. Yeah. It's simple. Yeah. It's easily it's 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 feasible to believe in my brain and I I think they they did it well. <laughs> or yeah. Rowling wrote wrote time travel well. There you go. How about you David? Final thoughts Prisoner of Azkaban. Um I I I think I've kind of summarized them earlier, but I really do believe that this one introduces us to a real knowledge that Rowling is a serious author Mm. and she's going to start doing some crazy stuff. (laughs) Yeah, true. Yeah, I just love that. Like, look, when you think of the Harry Potter lore, right up there is Patronus and Lupin and Dementors and they're all in this book. They're all all introduced. Yeah, right here. Just in 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 a seamless way, like a way that has no rough edges. It's just perfect. True. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I would say in closing again, Alex, I'm really grateful that you joined us for this. This was so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me. Yeah, I really liked your perspective uh, as someone who's, this is like, I, I, I love listening to people who really love something, right? Yeah, and you, yeah, you brought this book to life in a, in a totally different way for me. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, having both the kid and the so adult There's so much to talk about with this story, and I'm sure like there's we've missed so many like plot points and like little things, but yeah. um, I think it's those little things that make this book incredible and 
it's what makes this my favorite one out of all. So would you recommend listeners read this book, Alex? Um, uh, if you haven't read it yet, you probably <laughs> should. And if you don't want to read it, you should look for an audiobook. <laughs> ah, there we go. Uh, very, he's, very diplomatic. He's out Alex. all the, Good negotiation. All the possibilities. I like that. <laughs> um, so, Alex, where can people find you? Um, you can listen to me on this episode of Really True Fiction, or you can find <laughs> me on another podcast called Nothing to Fear, and you can awesome. Google that. Yes, and um, if you like Really True Fiction, you can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can find us on uh, uh, Facebook. You can subscribe on all main podcasting apps so that you get notified when new episodes come out. And David and I love interaction and talking to people. And if you hated this episode, you can direct all your messages to Alex. He's actually, it's all his fault. And you can just send it to Nothing to Fear and he'll hear about it. And I'll actually, in (laughs) fact, as a little bonus, a little tease, anyone who really wants to go after Alex, I will help. I will also pile on. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Luke's got my number. Luke, Luke, anyway, I just, again, thanks a lot, Alex. We'll do this again, but um, it's been a long time in coming and, uh, I feel there's something just like satisfying and appropriate that the first two guests on this podcast are you were you and Billy who are you know the other two people I do podcast with which you know it's it's just meaningful in a sense and and since I've known you for so long you were my first new Calgary friend so thank you. Well, that means a lot. Thanks, Luke. It was great any final words? No. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Well, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. I'm Alex Wan. And may the force be with you. And also with you.